0: How would you complete the following sentence? Life is a blank. Go ahead. Yeah. Call it out. It's hard to hear everybody at once, isn't it? Life is a journey. I caught that one. Another one? Life is a blessing. Life is a... Highway. Okay. I'm... A Pain did I hear? <laughs> life is a pain? Roller coaster. They're roller coaster. Okay. Where I grew up in Southern California, they say life is a beach. Right? The writer of the Hebrews, as we saw already in our reading this morning, has a little bit different take. He tells us that life is a race. And you know when I entered junior high school. I was uh, a little bit overweight. Uh, physical education wasn't my favorite class, but I had a fantastic coach. His name was Earl Toller. and he always spoke encouraging words, not only to me, but everybody in the class. And he really inspired me to exercise, which was an amazing thing for me as a young man. I grew up in La Jolla, and he called me one of his La Jolla fat boys. But I lost some of that under uh, Earl Toller's uh, influence because uh, he gave extra points in class if you did some exercise out of class. So I would get up early every morning, run a mile before going to school, get extra points, got an A in in the class. I think for the first time in physical education. And I also remember every Friday we had to run a mile in the San Diego Sun, and uh, you know which can sometimes seem like you're in a desert. And I remember one particular Friday, I was always the last one to come in. <laughs> and this Friday was no different than any other, except coach was at the finish line, encouraging me the whole way. Long before I got there, I could hear him yelling out, magnificent effort, boss, way to go, keep moving. And then I crossed the finish line just under eight minutes for the first time in my life. And, of course, that was no great feat. You would have thought, though, the way I felt, that I had just won an Olympic gold medal. Well, the writer of the Hebrews presents us with a similar picture at the beginning of chapter 12 of his letter. And there are people standing at the finish line cheering us on. All those heroes, if you've read the book of Hebrews, all those heroes mentioned in Hebrews 11, they're at the finish line cheering us on. And the question is, how are we to run our race to win? And the writer of the Hebrews tells us three key things we need to do. First of all, we need to throw off everything that hinders. You know, the ancient Greeks, who the writer of the Hebrews probably has in mind here, when, when they competed in the Olympics, or really any sporting events... They would literally, not only would they, of course, get in shape, you know, and train, but then when it came time for running their race, they would literally strip everything off. They competed naked. I know that's hard for us to imagine in our contemporary culture, but that was true. And there's a specific Greek word that the writer of the Hebrews uses here, the agona, which could be uh, a word for the race itself or the race course or the place of contest, you see that's what this writer has in mind. And then there's this other interesting phrase easily entangles we read it this morning. It can also be translated as easily distracts. Now, I I'm a lover of movies. And and one of my favorite movies uh, of all time, the young people won't know it, but uh, those of you who are my age or around that, you'll remember Chariots of Fire from 1982. In fact, I saw that movie before going uh, on a pilgrimage myself to England and Ireland, and that movie kind of prepared me for some of the things I was going to see. I was 19 at that time. And there's a scene in the movie where the American runner Jackson Schultz, He's running a race, and at the last minute, he looks aside to see who's next to him. And in that moment where he looks aside, he loses the race. I think that gives us a great picture of what the writer of the Hebrews is talking about. We can be so easily distracted. And what is it that distracts us? The writer of the Hebrews mentions a couple things here. Weights, you know, what are you weighted down by today? Maybe it's worry. I know a lot of us get weighed down just by things in our culture. We live in this consumerist culture that keeps telling us we need more things to be happy. And the more things we have, the more time we have to spend on taking care of those things, right? And then, of course, there's sins as well. He does mention that. And the sins that so easily entangle us, they're different for each one of us. I was reading uh, about a survey some time ago of 3,000 U.S. adults. And this survey identified differences between men and women in terms of what tempts them. Fifty percent of the men said that their greatest temptation was in the area of sex. Personally, I think the other half were lying. (laughs) (laughs) Only 22% of the women said that was a temptation When it came to food, though, the women were a little bit higher 29% said, uh, no, 29% of the men 56% of the women found food to be a temptation The men and women surveyed almost equally found money to be a temptation Men, 14%, women, 15% More men than women found alcohol to be a temptation 7% of men versus 2% of women. Interestingly enough, only 2% of men said power was a temptation. Actually, more women in the survey said power was a temptation. I found that fascinating. And you know, this list reveals some things to us, I think. I mean, none of those things on the list are bad in and of themselves, right? They're only bad when they get... Perverted, And by that, I mean when we use them at the wrong time, in the wrong way, with the wrong person, for the wrong reason. That's when we get hung up. And, you know, another thing that distracts us, I think, is when we go after second best in life rather than God's best for us. Let me give you an example. We lived for a time in Ireland with the stepson of C.S. Lewis, Douglas Gresham. At the time, he lived in a a 12-bedroom Irish country home on about 20 acres. His wife, Mary, had this beautiful veggie garden that was the pride of her life and uh, uh, a beautiful little uh, uh, glassed-in garden center. And she had an orchard as well. And so we helped in the garden when we lived there. And I can remember harvesting some of the fruit and quite often getting stung by bees. And not only would she treat my sting with uh, baking soda, but actually the first time that happened, she gave me a glass of water with baking soda in it and said, here, drink this. (laughs) I wasn't quite ready for that. I wasn't quite sure how it would help. It sure tasted awful. Maybe it was just distracting me from the sting. But, you know, she had this really ingenious plan for not distracting me, but distracting the bees and the wasps from her fruit. She would take a two-liter bottle of Coke that had been emptied out. She'd cut it about two-thirds of the way up from the bottom. Then she'd take the top, take the cap off, turn the top upside down, making a funnel into the bottom. Then she'd put sugar water in the bottom and, and make it a very attractive color for the bees and the wasps. So they would be attracted to the sugar water. They'd go in there and they'd get trapped. Now, why was Mary doing that? Did she want to provide a feast for the bees and the wasps? No. She was interested in two things, capture and control. And Satan's interested in the same thing. Capture and control. And he catches us every time we pursue second best instead of God's best for our lives. So I ask you this morning, what's weighing you down? The writer of the Hebrews encourages us to throw it off, whatever it is. Secondly, he tells us that we need to persevere in this race. Some of the older translations of this passage have the word patience. But I like the NIV here using the word perseverance. Perseverance. Because that's really more true to the word. Sometimes we think of patience as just sitting down and waiting for something to pass, you know. Relaxing until that horrible event goes by us. But no, the writer here talks about perseverance, being up on our feet and running. And why do we need to persevere? I think we need to persevere because we are in a long-distance race. We're in a marathon when my two older sons were in high school, both of them ran cross-country. And I would often go to, to watch uh, when they had a cross-country race uh, close to us. And, of course, if you've ever watched cross-country, you know that you only get to see the beginning and the end, unless you're running with them, which, of course, I wasn't doing. <laughs> And so you see how they start. You see how they end. And I often wonder what would happen, you know, if they began with a sprint. You know, they all end the cross-country race with a sprint. If they began by sprinting, they'd wear themselves out long before they got to the end. I think it's a lot harder for my money. I would place a bet on it's a lot harder to run a marathon than it is to run a 100 meter. I know each takes different skills, And we're each suited to different things, okay? But especially when we think about life, the marathon of life, it's harder to run, I think, 81 years well for God than it is to run 21 years. And you know, to me, one of the greatest examples I've ever had in my life of perseverance was my father. You've already heard a little bit about him this morning. He grew up in a a Christian home, his father was a preacher. At the age of two, he was playing around in the kitchen and he pulled a pot of boiling water over on himself. He was scalded from head to foot. But because of his parents' prayers and they were connected to many Christians around the country praying for my father, he came out of that with just one little scar. You know, sometimes we persevere by other people's prayers for us. When he was 19 years old, he committed his first crime, an armed robbery. And he was sentenced to 18 months in jail. After that, he got out, and uh, fascinating, he was actually allowed to enter the Army Air Force during World War II, despite his incarceration. Uh, Because as he was going to boot camp, the officer in charge handed my father the papers for all of the men who were being sent on the bus to San Pedro. And my father very cleverly looked inside and he found his criminal record in there and he just took it out and (laughs) tore it up. Of course, these days with the Internet, you you can't get away with those kind of things. But he served uh, well and uh, rose to the rank of captain, at which point uh, he was court-martialed for misuse of priorities, misappropriation of government property. He was sentenced to 10 years in a federal penitentiary. He served two of those years, and then the war came to an end. And in those days, uh, everybody who received a court-martial during the war was entitled to presidential review. And my father actually received a presidential pardon from Truman. He was ordered back into the Army to travel and lecture on his expertise of electronics around the country in colleges and universities. When he was finished with that, he got an honorable discharge, went back to Southern California, set up an electronics business, Uh, in Hollywood, where he was from. And he began um, innocently enough, but then he had an invitation one day to work for a private detective agency. And this private detective, who was a former New York cop, his name was Barney Ruditsky, invited my father over to his office one day. He said, I got a job for you, and there's $500 in it if you can get over here in 15 minutes or less. Well, my father was a big guy, a lot bigger than me. He was about 300 pounds at the time. He hustled, he got over there. And sitting in Barney Roditsky's office was a man, you'll probably recognize his name, Mickey Rooney. And as you may know, Mickey Rooney went through about eight different wives in his life, uh, successively, not all at once, but over time. I don't know which number he was on at the time, but he wanted a divorce from her. And in those days in California, you couldn't get a divorce. Well, if you got a divorce, you had to split the property equally unless you could prove infidelity. And so Mickey Rooney looked at my father, and he said, there's $500 in this for you, Voss. If you can tap into this telephone line in the next 15 minutes and record my wife talking to her boyfriend. And so my father set up uh, his system, tapped into the phone line, and got the goods. That job led to many others with many of the famous movie stars of the late 1940s. And eventually that led to my father being introduced to a man named Mickey Cohen. If any of you have seen the movie Gangster Squad, you know who Mickey Cohen was. And uh, he was the leader of organized crime at that time in Southern California. One day my father had an invitation to go to his office. Cohen's front business was a men's haberdashery, a beautiful men's clothing store. My father went into the store. He was ushered into the back. Cohen sat behind this circular desk. Interestingly enough, he had a a photograph of FDR behind him. Nobody knows why. I guess he was a fan of FDR. And uh, he dispensed pleasantries, immediately shot the question at my father. Voss, uh, did you put a listening device in my home? My father looked right at him. He said, Mr. Cohen, all I know about you is what I read in the papers. I don't even know where you live. No, I did not put a listening device in your home. My father was also working not only for movie stars, but for the police department in wiretapping at that time. And then Cohen said, well, if there was a listening device in my home, uh, could you come to my place of residence, uh, find it, and take it out? My father said, Mr. Cohen, you misunderstand. I'm in the business of putting them in. I never take them out. And Cohen reached into his pocket, and he pulled out a wad of $100 bills, and he just started peeling them off one after another as though they were artichoke leaves. (laughs) And... He said, does this change your mind? And my father said, well, I think my business is about to expand. (laughs) (laughs) He went and found the listening device, took it out, and that led to many other jobs for Cohen. He actually never did wiretapping for Cohen. He did electronic surveillance and protection during what was known as the Battle of the Sunset Strip. At that point, Cohen was vying for control against Jack Dragna for uh, Southern California organized crime, and that also included Vegas, which was started by their boss, Bugsy Siegel, supported by some mobsters from the East Coast. And so when Siegel was murdered, uh, Dragna and Cohen were fighting for the the kingpin spot. And so my father's job was protecting Cohen during this time. But through Cohen, he met other people as well. One of them was named St. Louis Andy. My father actually never knew the guy's real name. But he had the typical gangster talk. And he came to my father one day and he said, Davos. Davos. You make some really nice gadgets for Cohen. I wonder if you could make uh, something for me. And my father said, well, what is it that you want? And he said, I want something for past post betting on the racehorses. And so my father designed a system whereby they could electronically intercept the results coming over the Continental Wire Service. See, at that time, long before the Internet, everybody got their news in the United States. I don't know if there's anybody old enough here to remember. Maybe there's a, a few of you. There were two major wire services in those days, and one of them was the continental wire. And so my father designed the system to electronically intercept and withhold the information. He figured 90 seconds was just about right. Enough time for them to get the information they wanted, but not enough time for anybody else to notice. If any of you ever saw the movie The Sting with Paul Newman and Robert Redford, that was my father's story. In fact, the first time we went to see the movie in the theater... It got to that part where they were doing the sting operation and exactly what my father had designed. He didn't know this was coming up. He saw that. He said loud enough for everybody around us to hear, they stole my story. (laughs) I was so embarrassed as a little kid. But he designed that system. They were successful controlling race results coming into Southern California uh, from Arizona. And then November the 10, 1949, he was to go to St. Louis to set up this system to control the whole western half of the United States in illegal off-track betting. Of course, all off-track betting was illegal in those days. It was all operated by the mob. So St. Louis Andy wanted to be in control of it all. But my father never made that meeting because on the 6th of November in 49, he happened to attend uh, a huge tent revival at the corner of Washington and Hill, downtown Los Angeles, where a man who was up to that time was unknown. His name was Billy Graham. And Graham had been preaching night after night after night. It was supposed to be a three-week crusade. And uh, they kept extending and extending. And I'm so grateful for that because uh, my father came in the, the latter part of those meetings. And he'd heard the story of the famous uh, radio personality, Stuart Hamlin, somebody he had known, heard about his conversion. He thought that was unusual. His own father, preacher father, had invited him to go to the meetings. He said, no, Dad, it's not for me. But the Sunday before he was going to St. Louis, he was wandering around town. He and my mom were driving around. She was nine months pregnant with their second child. They didn't have anything to do that day. And they happened to pass by this tent and saw the big sign. And just on the spur of the moment, my dad said, why don't we go in and check out this Graham fellow? And they walked in, and his jaw literally dropped to the floor as he saw every one of those 6,000 seats were filled in that tent. They barely had room for him on on the back row. And my father tried to find everything wrong that he could with what was going on there that night. Of course, he'd seen it all before. He grew up as a preacher's kid. But when Graham got up to speak, he couldn't find anything wrong with that. Try as he might. And that night, Mr. Graham, one of the scripture passages he used was where Jesus said, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his own soul? And that was my dad. He'd seen people killed right in front of him. He wondered how long his life was going to last. And then Graham, when he gave the invitation that night, he said something he I don't know if he ever did it any other time. He said, there's a man in this audience tonight who's heard this message many times before, but he's never given his life to Jesus Christ, and this may be his last opportunity. My dad sensed that God was speaking to him. He turned to my mother. He said, I'll go. And they walked that sawdust trail to the front and went to the prayer tent. And he knelt and he prayed, God, if you'll mean business with me, I'll mean business with you. If you can take this messed up life of mine and turn it around, You can have it all. And as he left the tent that night, there was a reporter there with a camera person asking for a story. And his first inclination was to walk the other way. Then he thought, oh, I got so many people I got to make things right with. Uh, Best to get the communication out there. (laughs) So he gave the story. It was too late to run the next day. But the day after November 8th in the Los Angeles Times, the headline was Wiretapper Voss Hits Sawdust Trail. And from that point, he began repaying everyone he had ever cheated or stolen from. When he was finished, he didn't have anything left. And you you wonder, how do you recover from a moment like that? People always ask me, how how, how do you get out of the mob? Amazingly, Cohen respected my father for his decision and wanted to meet Billy Graham. (laughs) My father arranged the meeting, and that was the first of many. And then St. Louis Andy came calling on my father with a bunch of his big guys. When my father didn't show up in St. Louis, he said, we'll be out to see you. And they were, they drove up in their big black limousine to my father's residence. My father went out front. My mom had just come home from the hospital with her second child. And uh, Andy said, you're coming with us. And my father said, no, my life's under new management. And I don't know if I would have had the guts to do this, but my father actually invited St. Louis Andy to come to the Billy Graham meetings with him that were still ongoing. And Andy thought about it, and he said, no, it's not for me. And he said, come on, guys. And they turned around, and they walked away. And there was only one other run-in he had with Andy. It was a month or so later. My father began to have opportunities to share his testimony around the country and eventually around the world. And he'd been down in San Diego. And after that meeting, he was back home, got a call one day from St. Louis, Andy. And Andy said, what have you been doing, Voss, shooting off your mouth down in San Diego? My dad said, what are you talking about? He said, there was a guy in that meeting. He worked for the telephone company. He was going to set up the electronic system for us, but he heard your, your story, you know? And then he told us he wasn't coming with us. And that was the last he heard of Andy. But God provided for my parents' needs every step of the way, and they persevered. 1952, he'd been here in Chicago at a series of meetings. That was a presidential election year, a lot of things in the news. And he traveled with two tons of electronic equipment. And he used it to illustrate his messages. And after the series of meetings he had here, he went back home. He was unloading the equipment in his garage when suddenly his legs buckled underneath him. And he fell to the garage floor and he couldn't get up. And my mom took him to the hospital and they diagnosed him as having polio. And the doctor said he'd never walk again. He was supposed to come back to Chicago to speak at Moody Church in about a month. And he sent a telegram saying, I can't come. I have polio. And the elders of Moody Church wrote back to him and they said in the telegram, we believe God continuing to advertise meetings. A month later, because of the prayers of so many people and because of perseverance, my father walked off the plane here in Chicago and stood up in front of a full Moody Church, 4,000 people, and shared the story of the power of Jesus Christ to change people's lives. 1958, He read about the teenage gang problem in New York City, thought maybe he could do something to help get kids out of the gangs because he'd been so much like them. He set up a club for boys in a storefront, and he slept in the back for a while while he got it going. At first, he couldn't meet any of the gang members. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. He was the only white guy in Spanish Harlem that wasn't a cop, so they figured he had to do something with the police or the FBI or something. They didn't trust him. Until he put on an electronic show in the local junior high school. They were fascinated. You know, he used stereophonic equipment, something most people hadn't heard of at that time. You know, made it sound like a a railroad train was going right through the the auditorium. Sent electricity through people's bodies. Used black light to, to show the color in ordinary rocks all these sorts of things. And the kids were fascinated. And the next day, he had a mob show up at his storefront. He had to hand out membership cards. And that was the beginning of his lifelong ministry called Youth Development. Until in 1969, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's at the age of 50. Now, you would think anybody who'd been through as much as he had been through would want to give up at that point, but he didn't. And again, defied medical expectation. He lived another 28 years. And my memory of my dad at the end of his earthly journey is the fact that when he was 75, he and my mom moved from the metropolis of San Diego, 2 million people, to a little place in Virginia called Headwaters that had, I think, about 20 people in residence there when they moved there. And they brought a team with them to start a youth camp, doubled the population there just with their team. And he started a youth camp. And even though he was confined to a wheelchair, a little scooter that he'd get around on, he'd come in on the scooter and he'd give his talk about how Christ can change people's lives. And lives continue to be changed. We all need that kind of perseverance to run the race to the end. But where does the strength come from to do it? The writer of the Hebrews tells us we need to fix our eyes on the finish line. That's what's going to empower us. And who's there at the finish line? All those heroes of Hebrews 11. And right in the center of that crowd is Jesus cheering us on. Says that he's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That means he's gone through everything that we had to go through. He's led the way. And he's done so much more. I mean, he's experienced all the the negative things we go through as human beings, abandonment by, by friends, you know, rejection by people, suffering. But, you know, when he suffered on the cross, a lot of people have been crucified, but there's only one I know of who had said that he did it to take on the sins of the world. Something you and I will never have to do. How did Jesus keep on keeping on? Even through the cross. The writer of the Hebrews says he did it by keeping his eyes set on the joy that was before him, the joy that would follow after. And you know, when I think of that, I I think of one particular little experience in my life. I may have told you earlier, when I was 19, I went on a pilgrimage to C.S. Lewis's Ireland and England to... uh, see all the places where Lewis had lived and where he wrote his books and, and uh, where he taught and even the places, uh, some places where he preached as a lay person. And another thing I wanted to do at that time, of course, as I said, I was interested in the movie Chariots of Fire. I wanted to see scenes related to Eric Little's life. But I was uh, also fascinated by James Herriot and the Yorkshire countryside. I decided I was a keen bicyclist at the time. I decided I, was, I wanted to ride a bicycle across Yorkshire. And so when I was in York, which is right in the center of northern England, I talked to a guide there. I said, how far is it from here out to the coast, Robin Hood's Bay? I thought, that sounds like a quaint place. He said it's about 40 miles. I thought, well, that's longer than I wanted to go round trip in a single day, but I can probably do it. So I rented a bicycle, started out the next morning at 9 o'clock in the morning. Long about sunset, I was just getting to Robin Hood's Bay. (laughs) Ended up having to spend the night there. Next day, put my sweaty clothes back on again. Of course, I hadn't brought anything with me. The gal who ran the bed and breakfast I stayed at that night, she said, well, you came the long way. I said, how long was it? She said, 66 miles. I said, can you send me back a shorter way? She said, sure, you go this way. She showed me on the map. It was about 60 miles on the way back. (laughs) 126 miles round trip, you might ask, well, how did you keep going through all that? That was more than I'd ever done. I'll tell you how I kept going. I was thinking of the soft bed and the hot meal I was going to have at the end of the second day. You know, and the writer of the Hebrews tells us something similar. We keep going in this race in the Christian life by keeping our eyes set on Jesus And the joy of Jesus that we are going to know when we see him face to face. And he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And you say, well, I'm not running very well in my race. I know that. I fall down a lot. So do I. And, you know, there's hope even when we fall down. People ask me, what's your favorite C.S. Lewis quote? Sometimes it's hard to pick. But I think this is my favorite. He wrote it in a letter to one of his former students who he had led to Christ. And she was facing many challenges and temptations in her life. And here's what he wrote. No amount of falls will really undo us if we keep on picking ourselves up each time. We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. But the bathrooms are all ready, the towels put out, and the clean clothes are in the airing cupboard. The only fatal thing is to lose one's temper and give it up. It is when we notice the dirt that God is most present in us. In fact, it's the very sign of his presence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this marvelous passage in your word that teaches us how to run our race to win. Lord, we're each facing different challenges. None of us start out in the same place in life. And often many of us are headed in different directions. For those of us who've never chosen before this day, help us to choose to make our destination Jesus and his joy. Help us to throw off everything that hinders us in the race. Give us the strength to persevere by enabling us to keep our eyes set on you and the joy that you have waiting for us that we are going to see one day in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.